Hey y'all, this is Benny, the host of the Last Week at Podcast. Before we really get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say that it's been great fun for me and my co-host Mayank to use this podcast as a medium to chat with an incredible area of guests from all over the world on a variety of topics in the cricketing universe. For a couple of amateur podcasters, this is all possible due to Spotify for podcasters. And if you want to get in on this as well, here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. As added features, video podcasts are also now available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. So if you have an idea for a podcast, give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. Welcome to The Last Wicket, a cricket podcast that will strive to give you a longer notice if we end up cancelling a scheduled episode. I'm your host, Benny, and this week, my fellow co-hosts, Mayank, Nish, and Himanish, were joined by returning guest, Karthikeya, aka Static underscore A357 on Twitter. They spoke on a variety of topics related to the nuance of T20 cricket, including the skills that sets apart Sunil Narayan and Mustafizur Rahman, the value of Yorkers and white Yorkers in T20s, the ideal construction of death bowling, and much, much more. Now, before we get to that, though, I do have a request to make. Please click the link in the episode show notes, which will take you to a survey about this podcast. Your responses will determine how we can continue to improve the quality of our episodes, and it should take you less than five minutes to complete. We appreciate you listening to us and would love your honest feedback on the stuff we put out on a regular basis. Now, back to the show. All right, Kartika, thank you for joining us. So let's start with the World T20. Um, there are a couple of uh, players who were, didn't make the squad, and I was you know, questioning why that was the case. One was Finn Allen for uh, New Zealand. Uh, mm-hmm. And my thought was, in recent times, the strike rate against spin is 160. We are going to be playing on pitches which are going to be spin, uh, spin friendly. Um, so what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I expected Finale to make the squad because he was in the last two tours that New Zealand went around with. And I was surprised Seifert made the squad because against Australia, I believe, and even against Bangladesh, he was removed from the opening spot. So... It's weird that they've moved back to Guptil and Seifert probably opening and then Conway at three, how that works. But yeah, I would have at least gone with Allen as a backup opening option because you can't rely on Guptil at this stage of his career and Seifert who hasn't been in very good form. So, And right. also Munro is not in the team. I think Munro's had a fallout with the cricket board. So I was surprised that they didn't pick Allen as a backup batter. Yeah. 
The other one that sort of comes to mind is uh, Keshav Maharaj over, and I know he's captain right now, so I guess it's a different scenario, but uh, Keshav Maharaj over Imran Tahir was the one that comes to mind. And I know Tahir hasn't played for South Africa too much in the past couple of years. Yeah. Um, so that's obviously one of the reasons, but I've always, whenever I've seen him perform, whether it's CPL, it's the IPL, he's, he's done a pretty solid job. So just curious why South Africa has been, you know, hiding him or not, not favoring him. Yeah, I think Tahir put out a statement recently saying he's made himself available and they didn't get back to him. So I think it's probably down to non-cricketing reasons, honestly. But I was surprised George Linder was left out of the squad. He did very well against West Indies and he's been doing fairly consistently. But they decided to put Maharaj and Fortine, both his left-arm spinners, instead of Linder. So that was a little surprising. But Tahir, I think, non-cricketing reasons, not much to be into. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Shamsi is obviously the number one spinner. There's no doubts about it. But I just wasn't clear on who should be like the number two and, and was definitely yeah. a little surprised to see uh, Keshav Maharaj, who actually was making his T20 debut just a couple of days back. So um, it was so surprising to see him captaining and then now in the squad. Who are you backing to win or like make the finals? You can't really pick a team because anything can happen. But yeah. I think on paper, England look very strong. And Despite after, the lack of spinners in their squad, right? Yeah, I still think, I don't think every team has covered all bases, right? So right. I think West Indies have a few holes, India also have a few holes. But looking at the squads overall, I think England look very good, followed by India right. and West Indies. Right. So we'll move on to your work now. And you recently uh, wrote a long form article about Sunil Narayan and how he's changed and what he is. So to start off, uh, what is his. USP that makes him work in T20. I know you talked about the length and the speed. So can you talk more about that? Yeah, so most of the spinners who used to play T20 also used to play longer format cricket, right? So Narayan was probably one of the first spinners who actually specialized in T20. He only played a couple of test matches and then was left out of the West Indies team. So he has very little text, long format exposure. So what Narayan essentially did was drag the ideal length in T20, back to the five to six meter mark. I think, Himan, if you put, an article, put out a graph or something the other day yeah, that said right. in yeah. test cricket, spin bowling four to, is four to one five is the ideal. Yeah. Right. Four to five, four to is, five the is the ideal. And yeah. you have yeah. to keep going there. But what Narayan did was he pushed it back to that five to six meter mark. And what that does is it doesn't allow the batter to get onto the front foot, which is the typical slogging um, right. Power position. position that you, yeah. Right. But it's also not as far behind for the batter to pick the ball and jump onto the back foot, right? So it's that in-between length that he settled right. upon. Right. But the other thing that is fascinating about Narayan is he never, when he erred in his length from that five to six meter mark, he didn't err in the four to five meter mark. He erred in the six to seven meter mark. So what? Right. Yeah. So again, it was because he wasn't allowing batters to get into that slogging position. He wasn't allowing them to be positive, use their feet as much, right? And by doing that, he was able to, he was essentially one of the most economical bowlers in the world. The stats tell us that. And right. that in combination with the mystery, it just right. doesn't allow batsmen to have any freedom whatsoever. The second thing that Narayan did was consistently bowl at that 93, 94 kilometers per hour mark, right? Prior to that, spinners used to probably be around that 88, 89 kph mark. And they used to flight the ball a lot more, try to get 
more revs on the ball. But in combination with that mystery, when Narayan is bowling it at a higher pace, batters have smaller reaction time to pick the direction in which yeah. the ball is turning and also be yeah. decisive whether to get on the front foot or the back foot, right? So right. it was just minor tweaks in speed and length. It wasn't anything groundbreaking in terms of um, the direction of turn or in terms of right. mystery. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it was just those minor tweaks that made him the bowler that he was at that point. Right. Uh, and it's very fascinating because we had a chat about this on Twitter chat that does mystery matter more or does speed matter more for a T20 spinner? Right. So it's hard to determine whether the magnitude of each of these factors is larger in terms of impact, right? But how I see yeah. it is currently in T20, you have to bowl fast. Otherwise, you're going to end up like Kuldeep Yadav or Ishsodhi who are going to fall behind in the ranks, right? Because almost every spinner bowls in that Narayan range now and Rashid Khan bowls even faster and he's the best spinner in the world now. So I think speed is almost non-negotiable now and even length for that matter. You have to bowl back of length now because every time bowlers start pitching the ball up, they get smashed and a good case study is probably Imran Tahir. One of the biggest problems I have with Imran Tahir post-lockdown is he started floating up the ball a little more. Every time he does that, he gets smashed. So... And he immediately corrects himself. He bowls back of length every time he errs on the player's side, right? And he right. gets his economy back on track. So I think speed and uh, length is almost non-negotiable in T20 now. But what gives you that edge over other bowlers, what Rashid, Narayan get these days, is mystery because you can't pick them out of the hand. With Rashid, yes. yeah. his, both his variations, his googly and his leg break, the release is extremely similar. And right. Narayan, what he does now is he hides the ball behind his back before delivering right. the ball. So yes. it's very hard to have pick any cues on which way the ball is turning. So that puts you at a different tier, what's a, a different tier altogether. Similar right. with Wendu Hasranga, right? right? Wendu Hasranga right. both both his leg break and googly almost front of the hand. Right. So that differentiates you from a spinner of the category of let's say Adam Zampa or Yuzwendu Chahal or Rahul Chahal, etc. Right? I'm not saying they're bad spinners, but to be at that completely different level, you have to have that mystery as well. Yeah. So the mystery means that you can't be picked from the hand. The pace means you can't be picked from the pitch. So basically, the batter can't do anything. Now, we'll come back to Narayan here. Uh, He was called for his action in 2014, right? And his methods changed after that. So... What happened after that? How did his numbers and his methods change as a result of being so, called? Right. I think because of the mechanics of his action, whatever that is, his speed dropped a little bit. He wasn't drastically different, but every time he got called for suspect action, his speed dropped by three to four feet. So, as you said earlier, it gives the batter a greater amount of greater reaction time to pick the direction. Right. Second thing that happens is... Um, now, I don't know if it's lack of confidence because of his lower speed, but he tends to overpitch the ball a little more at times. So, again, it allows the batsman to get into that slogging position easier. But the biggest factor is the deviation of his off-break. It was specifically his off-break that got called for a suspect action, at least the first time he was called. And 
he just doesn't get as much purchase of the pitch anymore and when you can't put as many drives on the ball that mystery just wears out right even if you don't pick the direction of the turn you can substitute that by picking length early and if you do that and you're a good spin hitting batsman you should be able to not just milk narayan but hit him for sixes even that 4 to 5 right. uh, to 6 meter 67 meter mark mm-hmm. it's relatively easier to rotate a milk even if it was peak narayan so mm-hmm. milking the ball hitting him around for singles is not a problem but now i think batters are also able to hit him for fours and sixes which makes a difference has his strike rate also worsened post 2014 Yeah. It's massively worse and yeah. I think he picks up far fewer wickets. It's probably because of the deviation, like I said, right? But whenever batters are trying to hit the ball, they usually get decent connection when there's not much time. Right. Moving on to the next question, right? Sticking with Narayan uh, here. Um, let's look at a comparison of this performance versus uh, performance against right-hander versus left-handers, right? And it looks like he bowls worse to left-handers. Left-hander, um, any particular reason why that is? And do you think the action tweak has impacted that as well? Uh, so from what I see, even pre-ban, Narayan was better against right-handers than left-handers, which is fairly interesting. And it remained the same post-ban as well, although his numbers against left-handers, at least his economy, worsened by a larger extent. and i think it's largely because narayan operates over the wicket to left handers as opposed to most off spinners who go round the wicket so by going over the wicket narayan is the natural angle for him is away from the left hander so more often than not he's bowling it outside the off stump it isn't at on the line of the stumps so the lbw and bold factors almost out of the equation then which allows batters to be more proactive whether it's strike rotation or boundary hitting so if i were to come up with a theory that's probably it and what's fascinating is last ipl or actually this ipl the first half of this ipl 2021 narayan started going round the wicket to left handers and it's probably because he wanted to bring that lbw and bold back into the equation and he's obviously needed to tweak his action a little bit to be comfortable with the mechanics of going round the wicket right but it's fascinating to see how he's trying to work that out surprised right. it took him so long to work that out and make the shift so yeah staying with spin uh, one of the things that we've always wondered is what's going to happen to conventional spin because we see a lot of you know wonderful wrist spinners um rashid khan is almost on the level where he's you know he mostly uses his fingers he himself says he barely uses his wrist um so i feel like there's all these innovation coming in and if we look around uh, the world today the probably the only conventional spinner to have uh, to be among consistently picked among the international side is maybe ashton agar um so what are your thoughts about that do you think conventional spin is going to become obsolete in t20s right i think it's again we had earlier about whether it's a mystery that makes spinners as effective as they are right and conventional finger spinners don't have a mystery about them so there's by default there's no chance for them to go into that upper tier of spinners and when batters can pick the direction of the turn very easily it should be able boundaries more comfortably as well right whereas for wrist spinners or mystery spinners who can turn the ball both ways the only opportunity for the batsman to get them away is pick 
length very quickly. I think most West Indies batsmen, be it Nicholas Puran, Chris Gale, or um, even Karen Pollard, they don't pick the direction of the turn. I don't think they ever pick the direction of the turn, but they have incredibly good stats against wrist spin because they pick the length of the ball very quickly. Whereas for conventional finger spinners, you can pick their length, you can pick the direction of the turn. So it's not that difficult to get them away. I think they still have a role to play in terms of setting up matchups. If you have a right-hand heavy batting lineup, you might want to still go with a left-arm spinner. But I think they're not sure short starters in any eleven if you go across teams around the world. So in that sense, yes, I think they may well become obsolete. I have a kind of a generic question, right? Like when we talk about mystery spinners, like I understand back in the day, you know, when technology wasn't as evolved as it's today, mystery was a real factor and kind of like lingered into a person's a bowler's career, right? These days with the advent of technology and like, you know, um, and, you know, an army of support staff, why are we still so obsessed about a bowler's mystery, right? Like it should be within a session, you should be able to figure out the person's, I don't know, you know, with the video evidence, right? You should be able to like, kind of like discover what, the real mystery of the bowler is right or what is, why we like why is it so difficult for a batsman to like i um kind of like typically you know pick a bowler based on this whole mystery factor when we have so much video evidence of the bowler bowling uh, all this um variations i suppose right i think one thing is probably the reaction time it depends on when you actually pick whatever cue you're looking for and if the bowler is fast as we said it's a prerequisite now for almost every mystery, every spinner to bowl very fast. So if that reaction time is not sufficient for you to pick that cue and then respond as early as possible, then that might be one factor. But it's also probably because the spinners themselves keep evolving as some evidence comes out, right? I think right. if yeah. you are to survive in T20 cricket these days, you have to keep changing up those cues. You have to keep evolving so i think once you can turn the ball both ways and your release is somewhat similar you can probably make a few tweaks that you stay relevant over time nice okay i think kuldeep yadav is probably the best example of that because i feel like he had two two and a half years of really really solid record where he was bowling back of the hand he was you know he had all these three or four deliveries which weren't easy to pick but uh, to your point nish the ones that the video analysis started coming out and people had time because he was still bowling in, you know, in the seventies rather than um, even in the eighties. So they, they just had time to adapt. Got it. Makes sense. Right. So it seems like fast spin is the future. Like fast spin was the past. Sidney Barnes was one of the best bowlers in Test cricket, and he was kind of a fast spinner. So yeah. I think that is the future because it's tough to play. So we'll move on from one freak to another. Now you've also written an article about Mustafa Rahman. And I want to know from you what makes him such a freak bowler. Right. So I think Mustafizur, the freak bowler, was in that 2016 IPL when what made him so special was his ability to deviate the ball at a fairly high pace, right? I think with most fast bowlers, if you look at the speed distributions, it's mostly by mobile. So there's one peak for their stock balls and the other peak for their slow ball. So whenever they bowl, they cut a back of the hand or whatever variation, the speed is significantly lower. Whereas Mustafizur was able to deviate the ball at whichever speed 
he chose to pick right he used to bowl up to he used to bowl cutters up to 140 kph and he could bring the pace down all the way to 110 kph and get almost the same amount of deviation for each delivery so that's what made him a fantastic bowler and what why that makes him so special is he can essentially bowl the ball in the slot in a batsman's power position and he can still beat the bat because of that angle he's getting especially to right handers the angle is already away from the right hander because of his left arm angle and he gets the ball to deviate from there so essentially he can pitch the ball outside leg stump and the point of interception is likely to be outside off stump so right. it, if you pick the speed well and good if you pick the release well and good but that deviation is almost impossible yeah. to deal with and the speed also changes right when you pitch it like that when you break it like yeah. that off the pitch the speed also changes so he is making the batsman hit the ball but it's also deviating off the pitch like that so right. it's doubly dangerous right yeah so in in 2018 he had an injury and that kind of changed his numbers again so can you talk about that i think the first injury that he picked up was a shoulder injury and that was followed by an elbow injury if i'm not wrong so essentially what happened is mustafizur became like any other seamer in that if he had to get the same amount of deviation he had to bring his speed down so if you look at his speed distribution post injury it's going to be by model like any other bowler right and what he can still do is get the ball to deviate but he has to push the pace down to get get to deviate as much so now if you look at uh the deviation that he gets his slow balls get the same or almost the same amount of deviation as his faster balls used to get pre injury so like so that mystery has essentially worn out if you pick the cutter then you know it's going to be at a lower speed and you have more time to yeah. react to it and i'm guessing this has to do with the way he turns his wrist also while he cuts the ball right. i think that should be like very painful on the elbow right so that's hmm. why talking about fast bowlers or um medium fast i suppose right like do you think medium fast has a place in the game still or is it kind of like you know falling into the area where people no longer think it's a valuable asset to have in your team or even like a defensive asset i suppose so hmm so like as we said earlier high pace but it's spin off pace it more often than not works because batters have as a reaction time and if you can get the ball to deviate a little if you have good variations high pace is almost always going to be effective if you look at bowlers across the world and you pick a high pace bowler they more likely they're not going to be good at t20 cricket whether it's rabada archer nokia stark whoever you pick right so i think high pace is fundamentally difficult fundamentally difficult to play because if you sit on the back foot you're not able to get into that front foot power position so that almost gets locked out so you have to try to get onto the front foot and still give yourself enough reaction time so high pace fundamentally is extremely hard to play so by default medium pace is going to be easier to play unless you're someone who can differentiate yourself right what mustafizu does even now he can get the ball to deviate so i would rank him at par with any other high pace bowler because he has that deviation which is going to be tough to play regardless it's fundamentally difficult to play um uh, the other extreme is probably someone like natrajan um uh, 
we don't know whether Natarajan is going to survive in the IPL for more than one year. But what he does is bowl an extremely high number of Yorkers, high percentage of Yorkers. I think the average Yorker accuracy rate might be around 29-30%, but Natarajan is probably around that 39-40% mark. So he bowls a significantly greater percentage of Yorkers and at a greater accuracy, right? So if you can master something like that, whether it's deviation or Yorker bowling, then you're probably going to survive because Yorkers, again, they're fundamentally hard to play. You cannot play Yorkers unless you have range where you can scoop the ball or slice the ball, etc. So it's fundamentally hard to play Yorkers. I think the third extreme would be someone like Wayne Bravo. Wayne Bravo has survived over the years despite not being able to deviate the ball as much, despite not having a Yorker accuracy rate similar to Natarajan's. That's because of his understanding of the game, right? He knows who to bowl slow balls to. He knows who to bowl what length to, right? So if you have that, if you have a level of understanding of the game equivalent to Bravo's, where you can essentially decide what you want to bowl on the spot, depending on the matchup, depending on your experience, then you're probably going to survive as well. So I think bowlers, if you're a medium pacer, you have to master you have to pick one skill set and absolutely master it, become an outlier at it, right? Because otherwise, any high-paced bowler is fundamentally going to be harder to play. So I think unless you pick out one skill and become brilliant at it, you're not going to survive. Right, that makes sense. Because every time I see Brower, right, like when, when he plays, he almost seems to go for a lot of runs, but at the same time, he is very effective in collecting the wickets as well, right? Like, which is kind of like an odd combination, I guess. But yeah, I think it's longevity. Must speak to his uh, skill set, right? He must be doing something right. Definitely. Yeah, so we stay on pace. And I know you've done some numbers on this. So you recently did some numbers on uh, the ideal construction of a death bowling over or something like that, right? So can you talk right. more about that? Right. Again, ties back into our previous discussions. But... It's death bowling is often thought of as Yorker bowling, right? These days, right. it's almost equivalent, but it's actually not the case because, yes, if you nail a Yorker, then it's fundamentally hard to hit because you can't get under the ball and slog it. But the problem is, Yorker accuracy rates, even if it's Boomerang or Archer, you don't nail more than a third of your Yorkers essentially, right? And right. when you right. miss your length, when it's a slot ball or a full toss, yeah, then you the can economy be. rates shoot up from almost a runner ball up to 10 and over. Right. So right. that's almost a trade-off you're making. If you miss your Yorker, it's almost a given that you're going to travel. Whereas if you bowl consistently back of a length, you're probably setting a, you're settling in around that eight and a half, nine meter mark. You're not going to get the ceiling that a Yorker is going to give you. So you're not going to go down to run a ball. But you're going to get steady returns on that back of length, right? And again, one way to succeed is be like Natarajan, become an absolute master at the Yorker. But the other extreme would be someone like Timal Mills. Timal Mills is an England fast bowler. He bowls at high pace, but what he does is he probably has the lowest Yorker attempt rate going around the world. He almost exclusively bowls back of a length, bangs it into the surface. Right. And 
by just doing that, he's one of the best death bowlers in the world. I think his death bowling economy in the last three or four years is the best in the world. So I think it's something bowlers could pick up on. So if you that's also a function of the ground dimensions where you usually play, right? So Mills right. will play in England where the grounds are bigger and they have these yeah. odd dimensions. So he can usually get away with bagging the ball in. Whereas I don't think you could do that in India because the ball doesn't uh, shoot off the surface. And if you bowl short, you might get hit. So, yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating thing um, right. to consider. Now, what do the numbers say on wide yorkers? Because there's a theory going around that you should bowl them. So, like, what have you found in the numbers? Yeah. So, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because there was this fascinating insight that Dwayne Bravo gave us in the last series that West Indies played against, I believe it was South Africa, right? So Bravo almost exclusively stuck to a wide Yorker strategy and Obed McCoy and Andre Russell also followed suit. So three designated death bowlers, all of them attempted exclusively wide Yorkers. And what Bravo said is because of the ground dimensions, the larger square boundaries and the batsman's hitting arc predominantly being in that leg side region, he was happy to concede a few wides. Right, right. If he's able to nail that wide yorker at a decent rate, right? Mm-hmm. And if you actually look at the numbers, yeah. um, it doesn't support his claim because okay. if you remove the wides, but if you look at only non-wide balls, he's mm-hmm. right in that it's more easy to contain batsmen by sticking to that wide right. line. Why? Because more often than not, when bowlers are bowling that wide line, they have a field set that supports that strategy. Yeah. Right? They have a predominantly yeah. offside field. Yeah. And secondly, you almost take the straight hit out of the equation because right, right, right. if you right. bowl at the batsman, it's easier for them to hit down the ground. So there's yeah. a very limited... And area. to the leg side. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a very limited region you can access. So you understand why it's fundamentally easier to hit wide yorkers. But once you put the wides into the equation, then wide yorkers are not any different to straight yorkers. Okay, so the the cost of the wides makes up for it, you're saying? Exactly, the cost of the wides makes up for it. That's fascinating. Right. And actually, Phil Simmons corrected Bravo after that series. He said... We're going to stick with that wide yorker strategy, but we want to cut down the number of wides as we play more games. So I think they've essentially got it spot on now. They are fine with the wide yorker strategy because it's wide yorkers are more difficult to hit, but you have to cut down the number of wides if you're going to do that. And what's fascinating wow. is I think the stature of the batsman also plays a role in whether it's better to attempt that wide yorker. So one type of batters who against whom you wouldn't attempt the wide yorker would be, say, Dinesh Karthik or Fabian Allen or even A.B. de Villiers because they have extremely good offside range. So even if you bowl wide yorkers, they're probably going to hit you away. And once you account for the cost of the wides, then it's not a sustainable strategy. You probably have to go back to the straighter line. The other one would probably be someone of the stature of Hardik Pandya or Andre Russell. I think because of the reputation of Andre Russell or Hardik Pandya, what happens is bowlers tend to drag the ball past the tram line more often just because of the stature, just because they hit sixes when it's within their slogging arc, right? And 
what's fascinating is russell against russell every um fourth wide yorker you attempt one is a wide right so 25% of wide yorker attempts are wide so what is happening is if you're sticking to an exclusively wide yorker strategy you're going to bowl one or two wides per over and you're giving your card away to him right right without a dot ball right so no ball counts in your favor and you give him your card away so he knows what to expect for the rest of the over right and it's almost at the cost of nothing you're getting no reward for bowling that wide so right. i think again it's slightly dependent on the batter as well if they have excellent offside range you probably want to go straighter if there's someone of that stature you might want to stick with the straight yorker to give yourself more margin for error essentially so it's not a clear cut strategy but more often than not if you can cut down your wides then it is a fair oh, yeah good plot the reason that's fascinating is because uh, you know in 2010 t20 world cup that was england's strategy when they won they they were like we're going to think about wide yorkers and i was always curious why that didn't become you know the norm and it's clear because essentially execution of that ball is very very hard and with those fine lines you end up giving too many wides and undo the good work so basically like net bowling is a very very hard job like basically the bottom line is that right yeah for almost everything was a catch right if you bowl yorkers yeah. you might miss your length if you bowl wide yorkers you risk bowling wide if you bowl into the pitch you need to have the pace to support that so right i think a lot of variables to come what about the concept of bowling fast spin at the death i don't think that's been tried very often but like what do you think about right. that i think again if you're at the tier of rashid khan or sunil narain they will probably survive by bowling at the death simply because it's difficult to pick their length and the direction of turn right so right. more often than not they're probably going to survive just like they do in any other phase i think the point we have to consider is the trade off by bowling them at the death because mm-hmm. if you do bowl them at the death they're still going to go at a higher rate so do you want to maximize their wicket taking potential in the middle overs in the middle overs we could right, right. actually more value right so them being your best bowlers you probably want to get wickets in that middle over phase so are you willing to take out those overs from there and move them into their depth where wickets may not be as valuable and they're still going for a higher rate so right i think it's more of a trade off issue than them not being capable death bowlers right conventional spin gets hit at the death right this is something we've discovered in the numbers as well that yeah conventional people try to hit more they get hit yeah it yeah. it's natural because i think spinners they just batters have more time to either advance down the pitch yeah pick the length yeah. and slog them so yeah. i think it's easier to slog spin than pace in general if it's just conventional spin right right All right so we've talked a lot about spin bowling death bowling um now I'll switch to the batting side um uh, in t20 we we know that the team that generally hits more boundaries wins but is it also true for a better batting order that usually wins uh because we've often seen teams you know giving guys like russell 10 balls to face uh and there always been questions around what should be the right batting order so just curious your thoughts on that 
Right. So the batting order itself, not the strength of the batting, is it? Or right. combination. Both those things. Both right. those things. Basically, mm-hmm. like, can you make a general rule where you can say that the better batting order wins a T20 game? Mm-hmm. Like a better bowling attack usually wins a test match, right? So Right, right. So I think it depends on how you want to define the strength of the batting as well, right? Because uh, 85% of teams that hit more boundaries win. So I would define a good batting lineup as one that is able to hit more boundaries than the opposition, right? I think if you look at the recent 100, Birmingham Phoenix stopped the table by essentially picking a team full of boundary hitters. They didn't pick a specialist anchor in the team. It was just high intent boundary hitters from top to down. And by doing that, they were able to succeed. And yeah, I think optimization of the batting order is important. You want to allow your boundary hitters to face a maximum number of balls. You also want your spin hitters, your spin six hitters to face most balls in the middle, whereas your pace power hitters deal with the power play and the death overs phase. So I think those optimizations are obviously there, but the better boundary hitting team usually wins. And it doesn't have to be purely through the batting lineup itself, right? If you have an extremely good defensive bowling attack, whether you're talking about Sunrisers 2016 or you're talking about Perth Scotchers or whoever it is, if you're a good defensive bowling attack, you're restricting the opposition's boundaries. So I think it all comes down to that boundary hitting differential, essentially. That's fascinating because in test cricket, there's a ceiling, right? If you have very good bowlers, Hmm. there's not much the batters can do. So how much of that rule is valid in T20? If I pick a bowling attack of Bumrah, Rashid and Narayan, am I going to restrict a very good boundary hitting team to 140 all the time? Is it something like that? It's interesting because if you pick out the elite bowlers, they probably have good matchups against the elite batters in T20 cricket, right. Right? right? So, I think if you pick the elite of elite bowlers in a bowling attack, they're probably going to do better than the batting team. And also, I think it's because mm-hmm. bowling is weak link, right? So, right. even if you have right. one weak link in the bowling attack, you can uh-huh, right. still yeah. get attacked. Whereas, even if one or two batters click, they probably... Right gonna do fairly decently. I think RCB is a good example, right? right? Yeah, yeah. They're mostly dependent on AB de Villiers, but who cares? He always delivers, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Well, fascinating. Well, thanks, Karthika. I think that's all the questions we had. Okay, thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate your knowledge so on this. Always nice talking to you. Well, that's it for this episode of The Last Wicket. Thanks again to Karthikeya for joining us. And do check out our show notes for links to his social media handle and his article on Sunil Narayan. Meanwhile, if you enjoyed this conversation, do rate and subscribe to this podcast to be notified of new episodes. Follow us on your social media feeds and leave us a voice message if you would like to share your thoughts with us. Once again, please do us a favor and answer the survey about our podcast that is linked in the show notes. Thank you for listening and from all of us here at The Last Wicket, stay safe and stay healthy.